0: thing that happens with amygdala hijack is that once your heart rate, once you get scared enough and your heart rate gets up to a certain place, they think it's somewhere over a hundred. I don't know exactly what the number is, but for, for different people it's probably a little different. But once it gets high enough and you get scared enough, then all of the hormones in your body flood. Wham! There's just this flush of hormones that are fight or flight or freeze. And once those flush, once those flood your system,
1: you're a goner. This is Susan Chestnut of the Chestnut Law Firm. This is my podcast from foster care to family law, a child welfare focus. I was raised in the foster care system. I was a child abuse investigator for the Department of Children and Families. And now I'm an attorney practicing family law where my passion is to focus on the best interests for the children involved. In my podcast, I will be meeting with industry experts, exploring the seemingly impossible scenarios that families often struggle to manage. I have the pleasure today of being with Deborah Johnson. She has a company called High Stakes Communication. A few months ago in the spring, I had the opportunity to observe her and learn from her while she was an expert on the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers webinar. And I reached out to Deborah because I wanted to get to know her better and see what she could teach me. I found out that Deborah has a master's in cognitive psychology, and she has quite the experience on assisting attorneys and clients and witness preparation. Deborah, could you introduce yourself a little bit more today? And thank you so much for being with me on this podcast.
0: Thank you, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. This is a topic, working with witnesses, that's very near and dear to my heart because witnesses face really difficult challenges trying to break through in trials and in depositions to say what they need to say, to show the court who they really are and to be able to try and get what they need to get. And communication is very fragile, it's very delicate, and it's also very powerful. So helping people be the very best that they can be as themselves, as their authentic self is my goal. That's what I'm always trying to achieve, whether it's with the attorney himself or herself, or whether it's with their client, with the witness. So that's the work that I do these days is to work with people one-on-one to help them be able to communicate the very best that they can in these very tough situations when they're they're facing testimony.
1: And... When I had the opportunity to work with you, you and I did about a 13-week program specifically to train me as an attorney to learn how to diagnose a witness, to learn how to train them to be able to communicate more effectively in court so that we can further our clients' needs, and then also to empower them why don't you tell us a little bit about how you come into a situation when you're hired by an attorney per se and what your role is in that circumstance
0: sure the first thing that i need to do i i get the background on where the case is what the attorney is concerned about so there's something that the attorney is concerned about that their witness isn't going to show up maybe any number of things maybe they're scared they're worried Maybe they talk too much, maybe they don't talk enough, maybe they interrupt, maybe there's some emotional undercurrent going on, but there's something that the attorney's worried about that when they put their client either in deposition or trial and testimony, that they're not gonna show up. They could have a great case, but if you've got a witness that's a problem, the case could go down the tubes and every attorney knows this. I find out what the case is about and then I find out what the the attorney's concerned about. So then the first thing that I do with the witness is basically to diagnose them, kind of the way a doctor does. So I watch, I listen, and I'm looking for what's not working. What is it that's not coming across well? I I like to say that you go in to see the doctor, and if the patient says, oh, my fingers are tingling, doctor doesn't necessarily look at their fingertips to see what's going on at their fingertips. The doctor may be looking at their elbow or up in their, up in their spine, in their neck, because that may be where the problem is. That could, that can be It can be in your neck that's causing the problem in your fingertips to tingle. So I'm looking beyond the surface to see what's going on. Is the person scared? Is the person worried? Is the person hiding something? Are they insecure? I work in, as you met me, I work in a lot of divorce cases. And sometimes I work with people, actually quite a few, who have been abused. And there are a lot of underlying things that are going on with men and or women who have been abused. And so it's not as easy as just sit up straight, speak your truth, go ahead and tell this. There's a lot of undercurrents. There are a lot of things going on that can drive a person to not come across well. So I'm looking for not only what shows up on the surface, but what's driving that underneath. So I'm looking at what's going on with their thinking. Are they having trouble remembering things? Are they not clear about what the main points are? Then also looking at their behavior. So I look at their body language. Body language is a great telltale. So if if they're not making eye contact, if their shoulders are hunched, if their fingers are nervous, if they, there's just a whole bunch of body language that goes on that tells me something's going on either in their thinking or their feeling. So that's a great, that's a great symptom. And then I'm also looking at, at what emotional undercurrents are going on. So am I seeing temper? Am I seeing anger? Am I seeing frustration? And Am I seeing a lot of tears? So I look at those three areas and begin to put together a profile. So I'm really looking at the diagnosis what's going on, and then where do I need to work with them? So it's not just a simple, you know, here, tell me this, tell me that, sit up straight, stop wiggling. It's not that simple. In order to change someone's behavior, I have to work with them to change both their thinking and their feeling. So sometimes, I, I laugh sometimes, I tell people it's like being a therapist, it's like being a drill sergeant. So it's this funny sort of combination in there to try and help them dig out what's going on and then teach them a new skill or new skills. So it's helping them break bad habits. In some cases, people are nervous and they interrupt a lot. So I'll train them to not interrupt and then they come across much better. Every attorney in the world knows that if you interrupt in the middle of a deposition or if you're interrupting in cross-examination, that's deadly, that is just deadly. So you have to break them of that skill and teach them a new way to be. For example, if people talk too much, it's not just stop talking, it's really that there's something going on that's driving that. I worked with a, with a teacher one time who had been, her husband was very abusive, and she just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. She was simply waiting for someone to believe her because her husband didn't. He was very abusive and nobody believed her. And all she wanted to do was talk until somebody in the room nodded and believed what she was saying. Working with her and getting her over that so that she knew that in court someone would believe her, then she could speak much less, much more concisely, be a lot more confident but it wasn't as easy as just saying, stop talking. That's not how you do this. You, you dig in there and solve the problem. If you've got a leak under the sink, you don't just put a piece of tape around it. You got to go figure out, you got to go figure out where the leak is. So that's the work that I do. So that's the diagnosing part of the, of the process. And then I just begin to work with them, find out what it is that needs to be fixed. And then I have just a whole array of practices that i've developed over the years some that i've developed on my own some that i've borrowed from therapists or master teachers or athletic coaches just people from a wide spectrum a lot of the work that i do comes from brain research from some of the best minds in the country about how our brains work and what you do with how what the dna in your brain is doing so tapping into that so i just have this whole range of practices that I use to um, help people easily and gently break their old habits and develop new ones that they can, so they can build some confidence so that they can break this old habit and, and build a new one and then they can breathe and know that when it comes time for testimony that they have this new skill and they can be good. They know that they can be okay in court. That they're not going to melt down. That they're not going to crack. Mm-hmm. That they really know how to do this. And man, it's just fabulous to be able to see them to go into to go into go into a deposition or to go into court in front of a judge or in front of a jury and be who they really are and not be this sort of scared or tired or worried or upset person because that doesn't show up well.
1: Absolutely. And so when you're giving your clients that empowerment that they need. I I know that you explain the amygdala hijack that goes on when a person gets into a situation and you specialize and I specialize in high conflict divorce cases where there has been abuse or there's just this intense amount of fear surrounding the potential outcome and so oftentimes witnesses they get that fight fight flight or freeze aspect of it and How do you work with both the attorney, but also with the particular witness to identify that's the hijacking that's taking place and learn to manage that?
0: So you mentioned that there are two sides to that. One is the attorney side and one is the client side, right? So on the client side, it's, it depends on the person, it depends on how easily they're hijacked, meaning how easily can they be triggered? So how Quickly, how easy is it to just poke that tender spot and have them just melt down and the meltdown is really that they get scared that something threatens them and it isn't necessarily something that would threaten you or me, it can be that they are so tender from having been yelled at or abused or threatened and the least little bit of movement or even a negative facial expression can get them scared. So it wouldn't be something that you or I would be afraid of, but if you've seen it a hundred times and know that there's a fist behind it, that'll melt you down. Mm -hmm. So it's figuring out how quickly they're gonna melt down and helping them begin to see the leading edge of that, begin to recognize what it is that's gonna trigger that so that they can then breathe, walk away from the situation, calm down. The thing that happens with amygdala hijack is that once your heart rate, once you get scared enough and your heart rate gets up to a certain place, they think it's somewhere over 100. I don't know exactly what the number is, but for for different people, it's probably a little different. But once it gets high enough and you get scared enough, then all of the hormones in your body flood. Wham! There's just this flush of hormones that are fight or flight or freeze. And once those flush, once those flood your system, you're a goner, but it's not, oh, okay, now I'm fine. You have to wait for those to literally to wear off in your system. It can take half an hour to two hours for that to get out of your system. So what you want, and especially from the attorney's perspective is to watch for this, to be aware of this so you don't let this happen. and and to train your client literally to watch for this, to watch for these triggers and to be on the front end of it so that they don't get there. Mm -hmm. So there are nice breathing exercises. There are visualization exercises. There are things that I can do with people in the moment when they're starting to get scared, to help them breathe, to help them. One of the things that I taught you is when you sit down and. And you're in these situations, is to sit down with your feet flat on the floor, mm-hmm. with your with your knees about 12 inches apart. Sit really tall and straight, like a little like a little L with your with your thighs and your feet on the floor. And if you get scared, to push your feet into the floor, like really press into the floor, that dissipates some of the energy in your body. Because what happens is you start getting scared, and the energy collects and begins to multiply in your internal organs Mm -hmm. and it just sits there and then it multiplies. If you can dissipate it, you can dissipate it literally through the floor. You just start pressing down on the floor and that will release some of that energy. That works. That's a good thing to do. Breathing helps. Sometimes I can teach them to do it invisibly if they're going to be in front of a judge or in front Mm -hmm. of opposing counsel to just take these nice deep breaths and slow their system down a little bit. The other part of that is to give them visualization exercises, so that they're they're literally disconnecting from those things that cause them to be afraid. To there are lots of really interesting neurolinguistic things that you can do to scramble images in your brain, to to erase some of these uh, memories, to erase some of these feelings that can be done ahead of time. So if I can get someone to disengage and scramble up this image of the husband with his fist so that it doesn't exist in their brain anymore, or it doesn't have this emotional component anymore, then it's not there when he looks at her across the room during testimony. So there are things you can do ahead of time to to desensitize the witness so that it doesn't trigger them. So you can lessen that triggering mechanism. So there's a series of of things that, that are possible to do. Then on the, or, and or do all of those things. So you can give them lots of little skills. And again, the minute they have these skills and the minute they know, oh, oh okay, I can breathe. I can push my feet in the floor. I could go home and practice imagining these things. Then they're not so afraid. Right. Then they're not afraid to see him in the room mm-hmm. or to see her in the room. Mm-hmm. And so that, again, just knowing that they're going to be okay makes it easier to, to be in the same room to know that they're going to be confronted by this person then on the attorney side it's really helping them understand how this mechanism works and what to watch for on the front end so that they're watching for and understanding literally the the biology of this so i've noticed when i talk to people about this that they understand oh there's this trigger and when they hit that when they hit that heart rate and when they hit that flood there's nothing they can do Literally. So talking them down isn't going to do anything. Attorneys have brilliant minds and brilliant words and they think they can talk into or out of anything. It doesn't work. You can't talk hormones out of your blood system. It just doesn't work.
1: And once it happens, the ship sails. And I know you gave me a really good piece of advice and I did exercise it several times since you gave it to me when we were doing our coaching was to Help the witness focus on the audience of the judge as the person who they are there speaking to because people, it's a very intimidating situation and one of the things I want to go into with you next is the different environments that we find ourselves in now because we're all out of our element here. But knowing your audience, whenever you're a witness, the judge is the only person that you need to be focusing on. That was something that you taught me. You want to elaborate
0: exactly, on that exactly. a little bit? Oh, sure. And that's really important because sometimes, yeah, actually sometimes, but sometimes a lot, it depends on who opposing counsel is. People can really, witnesses, your witness can get really triggered by opposing counsel. Mm-hmm. And if you got some really harsh, Negative, smarmy opposing counsel. Not that any attorneys ever.
1: Gonna None be described of us that never way. behave that way. No.
0: <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but if, if opposing counsel is negative, or bad facial features, or really out to get your your client, your witness, that's a real trigger. And so one of the techniques is to teach the witness to really, literally look through them.
1: Right.
0: This is just virtual you're not talking to the attorney you're talking to the judge. So don't pay any attention to the attorney literally look through them as though it's a ghost and only think about speaking to the judge. And so I practice with them as though it's, it's just a hologram. There's just a hologram of an attorney there. And you're literally, even if you're not looking at the judge, you're just looking through this attorney. And you're listening to their words and you're not paying any attention to the emotion in their voice or their facial expressions or anything, just tell the attorney what you tell the judge what you want the judge to know. That's all you're doing. So don't pay any attention to that attorney. And I've seen people's faces change. It's really fun when they get this idea that it's not that attorney. They don't have to pay any attention to that attorney. The attorney doesn't exist. There's just this little machine there just asking these questions and there your witness is there to help the judge understand
1: you and so this you there's said not this that so good you i have to say what you just said because there is a judge that i practice in front of who literally will tell the witness my only job is to listen to the question the attorney asks and listen to the answer that you're going to give and that's my only job here so the rest of it don't get don't get sidetracked and maybe if we tell our witnesses to focus entirely on communicating what they have to say to the judge, that's going to be something that helps them focus and not lose. That's I mean, that's what the other attorney's there for is to rally you up and to get you all yeah. emotional, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. And so if you don't buy into it, if you pretend that they almost don't exist. And it it takes some practice. You have to be patient, but if you're an attorney and you're doing any of these things that I'm talking about, you have to be patient Mm -hmm. because these are not skills that people come with. If they had these skills, they wouldn't be in your office having breakdowns. You wouldn't be worried about them, right? Right. right? They would be great and they probably wouldn't have ever gotten in trouble for whatever it was in their marriage in the first place. So you have to be really patient and you have to allow people to work through these things in their own speed. You have to model the behavior for them. That's really critical. And you have to let them do it in their own way. Mm-hmm. And this is really, that's a really critical point that I make with attorneys is let these people, let your folks do it organically in their own way. So you model the behavior and then you l- let them work through it and you let them practice it until they get really comfortable. You will see them shift. You will, when they get what this is that they need to be doing, you will literally see their face and their shoulders and their eyes shift.
1: Mm-hmm. So you and I, we talked about how there's a different preparation style that goes into preparing a witness for a deposition versus preparing a witness for a trial. Do you want to talk about those two different techniques and why there's different approaches to them?
0: Sure. Deposition is is really very one-sided and it's very antagonistic there are very few depositions that are simple or easy. You wouldn't be having a deposition if things were going smoothly in, in whatever the trial is anyway. So the deposition is all one-sided and it's very difficult for whoever, for your client, for your witness to be able to withstand that onslaught hour after hour. Sometimes it's two or three hours and sometimes it's eight hours and it's relentless. And there's no respite from it. They get to take a break. They get to go have lunch. But there's no, oh, my attorney's going to set me up and talk to me and make the jury think that I'm a nice person or tell the judge what a good person I am. There's none of that. It just starts out with the front line of the Chicago football team just coming down after you. That's what what happens. They're just coming to get you. And it stays that way for however many hours it is. So you want to get them you want to get them prepared for this. And so part of it is really helping them learn to just be very calm and to just stay, to pace themselves, to stay um, as calm as they can. One of the really important things that I do with, with my folks when I'm working with them is to teach them that they control the deposition, right? That's not something that they get, but they are literally in control. And the minute you hand them the control, it begins to shift explain that. that
1: because i think what happens and i've seen it i've had an attorney that i practice with deponents came up to wait their turn and they were literally kicked out of this attorney's office as a mind game to make them feel unwanted unwelcome and to play that power trip with them right when they walk in the door and that's this is the moment where as a deponent your attorney can't be your mouthpiece you're completely on your own so when they feel they're being attacked, they really are. So I, I like where you're going with this.
0: Yeah. So the, the biggest thing is that the whole pacing and the control of the timing and the control sits in your seat. It sits right there with you. I have people put their arms around it and own it. This space belongs to them. They feel like they're out there hanging by a wire and somebody's like their pinata. They're not. They own this space. They own their chair. They own the the space in front of them on the table. And they own their timing. And that's what's really important. I really talk to them about that pausing and thinking is their get-out-of-jail-free card. That they own pause. And this is the most important tool that they have. This deposition isn't going anywhere without them. And it doesn't show up on, if it's a written record, it doesn't show up. And even if it's on video, they have a right to sit and think. So they own own pausing. They have a right to think. And so the minute they can control the pacing and they can think and they don't have to answer right away, it's a habit you have to break. Because people want to listen to a question and answer. We're always in a hurry to help people. You're not there to help opposing counsel. So you get them to just pause, think about it. Answer the question. Now, attorneys will say, make sure you listen to the question and pause, but they don't train them to do it. They just tell them to do it. And what you need is to have them actually physically do it and, and not to do it because the attorney said that they have to own it. They have to really feel this pause belongs to me. It's mine. I am free to use this pause whenever I want to. It's my control. It's my management of that attorney. And when they know that they have this tool that controls that attorney, now they've got control on this side of the table. And so they get a chance to think, they get a chance to breathe. And, and and then they can change the pace because sometimes attorneys will just come after them. Damn, question. And they try to confuse them and they hurry it up and they make faces at them. These are all the kinds of things that'll make that amygdala hijack thing happen. That's how will get you that meltdown. But when you slow that other attorney down, That's not nearly as powerful. It also gives you time to recognize what's going on. So part of that is doing that. Another key point, obviously, that attorneys know really is to help people understand how to answer briefly. Short answers. Part of that is then training them. So what the training that I do on short answers is not to train them on their testimony, but to begin to just train them to really think and to answer short. So I'll start with, tell me about your last vacation. If I know somebody's a blabbermouth and they'll start, I had a guy go eight minutes one time. It was just hysterical because he loved to talk. I said, okay, that was eight minutes. Cut it down to two. Tell me about your last vacation, sit down. Now you got 30 seconds, cut it down to 10 seconds. And finally he got it cranked down so that when I said, tell me about your last vacation, he was able to say, we went to Cancun, period. So he got that that's what, it's, that's what it's like. When somebody asks you a question, you give them the shortest possible answer that's cooperative, that's true, and then you stop. Mm-hmm. And so then I would just keep asking questions. Tell me why you love your wife. Short answer. you got to give me eight words, right? So just until they get the hang of this, and then their brain will develop a new pattern of listen, answer short but just saying answer short doesn't work you got to get their brain to have a new pattern and and the other thing that i learned from that they taught me about this is me watching them is that a lot of people who talk too much they get actually a sense of relief in not having to talk so much i will see them feel this sense of relief of not having to tell everything all the time to everybody So I've watched business people, I've watched battered wives, I've watched all kinds of people, and when they know that it's perfectly okay, in fact it's the best thing, that they just answer short, they breathe, they smile, they just go, we went to Cancun, I was 12 years old. Whatever the answer is, they just answer briefly and stop. Mm -hmm. And they're done, and they did a good job. So there's this big sense of relief, and now they feel really confident about doing that. And now they're happy to answer short. So that's a really good thing. So it's, if you're the attorney, you want to train them to answer briefly. And so you train them on not testimony. So just get them into the habit and then you can go through testimony. with them. The other thing, the the little story that I always tell them that again, a lovely client one time taught me this because I just made this story up and she went, Oh, I love this. Depositions are counterintuitive and the attorneys always say, Don't talk too much. Don't give it away. This is not your time to tell your side of the story, blah, blah, blah. Here's the extension of that. When you get done with your deposition and you're out in the hallway or you're in the elevator or you're in your car or wherever you are, if you are frustrated, if you're like really frustrated because there were all of these things that you wanted to say and you didn't say them, you won. You did a good job. And her, the, when I told her this this one time, her eyes got really big. She said, oh, okay. So it's, that's counterintuitive. You're not supposed to be frustrated at the end of doing a good job. But when she got, that was the sign that she had done a good job. So I love to tell people that now. And they go, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, if I don't talk too much, then I will be frustrated, and then I'll know that I did a good job.
1: Now, you gave me an illustration of a go fish during depositions before about how to help a a deponent not give away the farm in order so they can walk out with that feeling. So can you help tell everybody what that is and explain it a little bit?
0: If you have kids or if you were a little kid and you played go fish, it's a card game. And in the card game you deal the cards out and everybody has a few cards in their hand and the game is to try and match cards. And so you look at your hand and then you ask the person next to you, do you have blue seven? And the person next to you is supposed to answer yes or no. If they have a blue seven, they have to give you the blue seven. You have a match and you set it down and you're on your way to winning. If they don't, then they just say no. Now, This isn't what happens in deposition. People tend to rattle on. In the game of go fish, if somebody says, do you have a blue seven, you're just supposed to say no. You're not supposed to say, I don't have a blue seven, but I've got a blue three and I've got a blue four. Do you want one of those or I've got a red seven? No, that's not how you play the game. You play the game, yes or no. And then, and I actually have uh, the cards so I can show people the cards and sometimes I'll make them play with me to give them this visceral sense. But they tend to really get that and go, oh, I got it. I got it. Don't tell them more than they ask. Just listen to the question and tell them exactly what they asked. Mm -hmm. But again, we tend to over talk in this society. And so it's really learning to listen more carefully and to be
1: Stingy but cooperative. Right. With what you tell people. Stingy but cooperative. I like it. I like it very much. Yeah. Now I know that differs from the training that you gave me on the trial prep when we talk about not necessarily coaching our clients but helping them to evoke the memory, bring it to the front of their brain and help them to put it into their own words and bring it to the surface and not be clouded by the allegations necessarily that are made by the opposing party. Do you want to talk about that, Sam? Mm-hmm.
0: Typically, you're a ways down the road from whatever the incident was, whether you're in the middle of a messy divorce or in criminal trial or um, a med mail case or wh- whatever it is you're not right on top of what happened and so memories can get messy and decisions can get messy. There are all kinds of things in your brain and sometimes it feels like there's just all this information that's just dumped on the in the middle of your memory and it's I having a hard time fishing it out and making making order out of it. So there's this great practice where I help people, work through this and and what you're looking for is to help them on their own in their own words recall memories recall ideas recall things and make sense out of them so that they can then whatever the question is in testimony they can answer it confidently and completely you know, and concisely without having to try and remember stuff. It works really well if they're trying to remember a series of things like what happened in what order. And Susan, do you want me to talk about how you do this? Yes,
1: uh, absolutely. Because I'm thinking about situations where people get accused of doing things all the time that aren't true. And one of the things that I do in my own practice, and I didn't tell you about this while we were doing our training, but one of the things I do in my own practice Every time I have a new client hire me, it's all about documentation and it's because of the power behind it and I'm going to lead into your example and then let you go with yours. So when I have someone who has, everybody wants to document things on their phone and as much as I love technology, we break our phones, we lose it, we don't pay our iTunes iCloud bill, we don't get our stuff uploaded, it needs to be in a paper form. I give out journals. To my clients, to help them document, did your child come home on time? Did you have your time sharing? What happened during this? And so, when you open your calendar as a witness, you can say, with a 30 day opening right in front of your face, you can count one, two, three, four, six, ten, eleven times in this month, she was late at the exchange. That's a much more powerful testimony piece then she's late all the time right and so you have an exercise where you help people feel that powerful about what's actually their truth and I want you to talk about how people do that and the importance of it and how it is effective
0: Yeah. when we're with people it's a little more challenging these days because we're doing so much stuff virtually but in the past I would get these great big, huge sheets that are probably 24 by 36 or something, tape them up on the wall, these big sketch pads, newsprint things, tape them up on the wall. The client stands up with a big magic marker. It's really important that the client does this in their own handwriting, that they're standing up because you want this energy moving through their body and their memory working. This is a very connected kind of a thing for them to be doing. So you don't want them sitting down with a piece of paper writing in a little handwriting. You want them up big doing it. And so in for example in a in a divorce case there are always accusations. So you write whatever the accusation is up at the top of the paper. And I tend to go with the positive. So for example a woman was accused of that this that her stepchildren were afraid of her. So I had her write at the top of the paper in the big magic marker the boys are not afraid of me. The the accusation from the from the mother was the boys are afraid. So I just said right up there, the boys are not afraid of me. And then I said, now, let's start looking for evidence. And you don't want to write down conclusions. You don't want to write down analysis. What you want to write down are real world, anybody could see it or hear it things. And minutiae is fabulous. So you want very real things. If somebody was looking through the window, what would they see? So she said, "The, the boys would come home and hug me. Okay, great. How many times would, when did that start? So I'm only, I'm going through details with her. I'm not prompting her. I'm not telling her anything. I'm getting her to give me the details. So I'm getting her, so I'm not going to just write down, the boys would come home and hug me. I want her to feel really confident about that and, and, and how many times it was. So we started counting. So how long have they lived with you? How many days was that? How many days were they in school? When would they come home? And she would just keep writing this stuff down. And we came down to the fact that there were thousands over the course of years. There were literally thousands of times that those boys would walk in the door and they would hug her and they'd run off and do whatever they were doing. That's completely different in her mind and the judge's mind than, oh, they'd hug me. No. This is how many times they did that. And I can see her starting to shift now. That this blame of the boys are afraid of me shifts in her when she counts these times and she knows this for a fact that nobody can dispute how many times this was they might dispute it from 11,022 to 11,011 but that doesn't make any difference she's really got this down and then and then she would come up with other things like oh one of the boys a mother of one of the boys came to me at the Pta meeting and told me how much he liked me. Buttoning his shirt. That's real evidence. That's there. So there are real things out there. So you don't want them doing analysis. You don't want them doing conclusions. You only, you have to get them to talk about what is real in the real world. And literally, we filled up one of these twenty four by thirty six sheets and went on to the second page about why the boys are not afraid of her so now she's digging out of her memory these very specific details so if the question comes up when the not if when the when the accusation comes up in court in front of the judge she can just start naming they they did this and they did this and they do this and they do this her husband will stand by these the boys will stand by these this accusation just goes away it just disappears now
1: Well, and the reason why it does is because of the skill that you taught me, which is the effect on the listener of a conclusion statement versus a fact statement. And when you take the client and the witness and you break it down into all of the facts, because that woman could have went to court and said, my stepkids love me. They love me. How do they love you? They just love me. You should see us together. They just love me. That is not effective. That's trying to convince the listener to believe you with a conclusion versus everything that you just articulated with that they've hugged me thousands of times from school. Every year they make me a Mother's Day card even though I'm their stepmother. And all of those facts are not conclusions and they're much more persuasive to a listener. And I, that's one of the most um, valuable things that I've learned from you and in, in, in picking up these skills from you is the difference between facts versus conclusions. And I, I did want to talk to you again about how important it is to continue the factual testimony versus the conclusory testimony and the effect that has on the listener, because that was, when you explained it to me, it helped me tremendously to understand the importance of the fact finder. Can you help those that are listening, understand the need for the fact finder to hear facts rather than conclusions as a listener?
0: In your brain, people can listen They're they're listening, so that either the judge is listening or the jury is listening, depending on where you are. And if you offer a conclusion, or an analysis, or something that is yours that that may have facts behind it, but there's that next step of you having some judgment in there, then the listener has to then decide whether they believe you or not. The judge has to decide whether or not those boys do love me. So now the judge is in a position of having to decide on this particular statement you've made. And every time you make one of those statements, the judge is having to decide whether he or she believes you or not. So you're forcing the the judge into making these decisions again and again, same thing with the jury. If all you're saying is it was 1200 times that the boys came home and hugged me. Oh, okay. And then you start stacking up this data. Now, and now you have left the judge or the jury to come to their own conclusion. You're not forcing them. You're not trying to coerce them. You're simply giving them information and they are now free to make their own decision. That's a whole different thing inside of their brains about, and now they've got some freedom. Now they're listening to you with more freedom. They're listening to you differently than if you're forcing them to make these decisions all the way along. You really have taken a step back and you're just offering this up rather than trying to coerce them or convince them. Mm -hmm. People don't like trying to be convinced. I I think of it as just taking this stuff and just setting it gently in front of the jury or sending it gently in front of the judge and allowing them to make a decision. And when you've got 1,200 times they came home and hugged me and they made me Mother's Day cards... Where do you think the judge is gonna go? The judge is gonna go, those boys aren't afraid of her. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it again and again. This technique is also is also very good in terms of remembering timelines of things because sometimes it can get really jumbled in your brain. And so you can start working on a big piece of paper and then you can reorder things in in order. Eventually you can, you know, rewrite them or number them or whatever you want to do. Another thing that really helps when you're doing this, that is an important part of this, depending on your client, but with this mom, she was still feeling a little kind of less than, and a little tentative. So I would have her stand there and read this list out loud to me. They did this and they did this. And I would just keep coaching her, read it a little louder, read it with a little more emotion. Tell me that you believe this Convince me so she got so that her voice And her body and her breathing would really help me understand that this was true. Mm -hmm. So you want to help imbue them with this confidence, with this sense of what I'm saying here. I really believe this. So it's not just the words, but it's the way in which they say that. And so that can help as well.
1: And they, this is the most important thing that's happening in their life. And so they want to convince you. They want to convince their listener. And they most definitely want an attorney who believes in them. And that the things that are being said about them necessarily aren't true. You told me a story about a man who was accused of stealing, in a sense. And all he was able to do was to focus on the hurt of the accusation and not be able to find his foundational self And I think as attorneys, sometimes we forget that we're dealing with human beings and that to go through this experience and to have these devastating things said about you is so demoralizing that you almost can't even bring yourself to defend yourself. Talk about the importance of, and I think you did a little bit earlier, but more so with this particular gentleman, how you had to reach deep inside him and remind him that wasn't the person that he is.
0: This was a, a, a case where a reasonably young businessman had worked for another company and and was f- frankly being treated not very well. They had bypassed him for he was doing great work for them. They'd bypassed him for a promotion and they were taking advantage of him and he finally decided that you know what I don't really want to work for these guys anymore. His family had done this kind of business that company had had dissolved. He had gone and worked for this other company, and then he said, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm just going to go start my own company. It's a thing that people do. I don't want to work for somebody else. So he started his own company. A couple of the employees that he liked really well went with him. They started the company. They were doing gangbusters. They were hurting the old company, so they got sued. It was a big company. They thought they were just going to shut these guys down, and he said, nope. We haven't done anything wrong. They were accusing him of stealing information, stealing clients, and he they did not do that. There was no proof, but they thought they could just bully him. And so he was feeling pretty beat up. And so one of the things that I did was, to, in his tone of voice and seeing that he wasn't feeling very strong, and yet I knew that inside of him was this guy who had morals, who had principles. But it, you can't just say, I have morals, I have principles. I wouldn't do that. Okay, let's dig this out. Let's go find this. So I stand up. Let's start writing on this piece of paper. Tell me about your background. Tell me, how did you learn to do this business? So we're just going through this. And now he's beginning to uncover how his grandfather and his father conducted business. And he's telling me stories about the way they treated their clients, the kinds of things that his father would do to take care of a client, the kind of. In the middle of the night, go out and do something. Leave a family picnic to go take care of someone. The kinds of stories that you love to hear about people being taken care of. And and so he's beginning to uncover. And so now I'm saying, so is this part of who you are? Of course this is part of who I am. This is what my grandfather taught me. This is what my father taught me. I would never, ever do what those people are accusing me of because that would be a betrayal of what my father taught me. That would be a betrayal of what my father taught me is completely different than I'd never do that. So we went through this a couple of pages of where his morality, where his business sensibilities came from. And he is shifting. I can physically see him standing taller. I can hear his voice changing. I can see him being a different person now because now he's beginning to understand and not understand, but being able to articulate to a judge why it is that he would never do what they were accusing him of doing. Here is the evidence, not the conclusion, but here's the evidence of why I wouldn't do that. Now the judge can believe or not believe that I learned this from my grandfather and so I'd never do it. But I will tell you that the way in which he said that you knew that he got that from his dad and that he simply would not behave that way. And the trial went their direction, but it helped him get, who he was Mm -hmm. and it works with people works with anybody you go find the heart of them and have them explore that and have them put it on paper and have them stand up and talk about who they are and how they got that way and then have them remember that when they go sit on the stand be that person be that guy that your dad trained when you show up on the stand take a deep breath and sit down there and remember what your grandpa taught you and then answer the questions from opposing counsel as that young man. Wow. Mhm. That's different than showing up scared.
1: It sure is. And it gets you a different outcome, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. Yeah. It makes you a much more effective communicator and, and communicating the truth. So, you work with attorneys like me. We did some private coaching so that you could help me learn some of these skills and apply them to my practice and my my clients when they're testifying or going to deposition. You also work with individual clients as well, correct? Yes. For, on their witness testimony. Yes. Tell everyone a little bit yes. about what you do for you and how they can get in contact with you so that they can achieve, achieve the best results that they can.
0: An attorney who is concerned about how other witnesses going to do will give me a call. Most of the attorneys that I know have seen me speak somewhere, do a presentation or something, and so they, they kind of have a sense of what I know, what I'm able to do, because it's very unusual. There aren't hardly any people that work the way I work.
1: No, there's not.
0: Because I work in a different way. I work at this really deep, this deep level in order to get people to change, willingly, happily, to be more confident so that they can do what they need to do and so typically it's either somebody who's seen me speak or they know somebody who has. Attorneys tend to talk to each other and so somebody will say hey by the way Susan saw me at AAML and she said to give you a call. Okay. So tell me about the work that you do and here's my person and they'll tell me the story of what's going on and then we'll talk about what can be done and then I, I want to know what's going on, what's wrong, when do they need to testify because that's always an important question. I hope it isn't they don't say it's next week. I <laughs> I have a little more time than that. Uh, although I did a rape trial when it was, hey, it's next week, which was <laughs> a little scary, but we we did a great job. And then, yeah, then I just dig in and start working with, with the person. These days, we're working virtually. And so on top of what I typically do with a client, which is to teach them, work, diagnose them, teach them new skills, the, the additional layer to that now is that I also help them understand and work with this whole virtual environment. In my first career, the first 20 years of my career, I was a TV producer. So I'm very comfortable and very confident working in this little square environment of television mm-hmm. and understanding what it does and how to work with it and how to look good and how to the sound and the lighting and all of that and how to bridge this really cold electronic gap so on top of the work that I do the sort of emotional and training and communications work now I'm also layering that in both for the attorney and for the client how do you work effectively in this in this electronic environment in this virtual environment and so then I just we set out here's how many times I think we need to meet Here's the kind of, here's where I need to go with them. And then typically I'll work with the client while I'm training them. And it's just one-on-one. I I tend to almost never, I would say 99% of the time, it's just one-on-one. We have to build trust. It has to be very intimate. And I work with them. And then when they're ready, then it's the attorney and me and the client while they're reviewing, while they're working on what the testimony is going to be. Because I like to be in the room when they're doing that. to Sit on the side and make sure that if we need any last minute coaching or any last minute work, that we can do that. And it's really between the attorney and the client, but I always like to be there. So then that's a, a three way that we do just to make sure that everything's everything's good. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I love it. I think it's been spectacular. When I saw you doing the AAML. Webinar. You weren't even five minutes in your presentation before I had Googled you, looked you up, emailed you, and asked you if you would meet with me individually. We did 13 sessions, and I feel so much more connected to my abilities to communicate. I think some of them were always there, but now I, I can see the need for them and the way One of the things that you and I talked about that I found was fascinating was I would come to you with specific personalities of clients. I I had a male client who was very dominating, almost narcissistic to a certain degree, and how to manage that client and his emotions and his personality traits and then on the converse, I also had a, a victim of abuse, of narcissistic abuse, who was having a very difficult time managing her emotions as a victim. And you were able to help me navigate both of those personality types in my communication style and how to be effective. And I really just, the what you're offering all of us to make ourselves so much better communicators with our clients and achieve better results is it's invaluable. Tell us how we can get a hold of you, your email, your website, what your best method is. I know you were in Arizona, so you and I had a bit of a time difference, but we worked around it. And it actually worked great for my schedule. So how do, how do we get a hold of you?
0: First, I want to say thank you. You are, for me, a great attorney to be working with. I love, first of all, I love working with smart people. So <laughs> it was really fun working with you. Well, thank you. And, and I really enjoy working with people who want to be better because every little thing that you learned from me and you applied, then your clients are better. It's easier for them. I I really believe that people have a right to be heard. And what I see every time I work with a client is that If they don't know how to say it, if they don't know how to get over their fear, they can't be heard. And there is no justice if a client can't be heard. I don't care whether they've got all the facts on their side. If the judge can't hear them through their pain or their sorrow or their anger, there is no justice. And and I'm not an attorney, but that's what makes me crazy. And so that's the work that I do. And so I'm so happy now that my work gets multiplied through you. So every little thing that I do that you learn, now you're out there doing that and there's more justice in the world. And that's my, so thank you for that. People can call me. I'm happy to take phone calls, 602-216-0049, or they can email me at Debra, D-E-B-O-R-A-H at High Stakes Communication, and it's high, H-I-G-H, hyphen, there's a little dash in there, stakes, S-T-A-K-E-S communication, singular.com. So high, high dash stakes, communication.com and the website's the same. It's high dash stakes, communication.com and everything's on the website. And I'm happy to talk to anybody about their clients, about what they need, about working with them, about doing CLE. I like doing, I do doing lunch and learn and all of it's virtual these days. So doesn't matter where I am. Doesn't matter where you are. i happy to, to hook up, I've worked all over the country now, virtually. I'm happy to to talk to people about what I can do to help it make it, help make it easier for you to get the results that you want with your clients.
1: First, thank you for saying such amazing things about me a few minutes ago. I I really appreciate that you recognize that I'm trying so hard to be the best at this that I can and help people as much as I can. I hope that people that are listening, whether they're a client who has learned how to manage their emotions and realize who their true audience is, not to be intimidated by those nasty attorneys who tried to be the adversary unnecessarily. And I, I hope that as attorneys, we've learned something from this also from you, Deborah. and I just can't thank you enough. So I look forward to seeing you again.
0: It was totally my pleasure, and and the season's best to everyone out there. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of From Foster Care to Family Law, a Child Welfare Focus. I hope that this interview provided some valuable insight to help you deal with your unique circumstances. If you found this episode useful, please share this with friends and family that could benefit from this information. If you have a family law need or related matter, please contact me directly and I will be happy to help you.